Why Christianity? Why not Mormonism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or any other faith? Over the last few decades, our culture has been sprinting into moral relativism, and the thinking goes like this. What's truth for you is fine for you, and what's truth for me is fine for me. Your truth claim is just as valid as mine, even if the two are inconsistent. And under this thinking, there's no independent standard of truth that we should identify and then submit our lives to. So take moral relativism and apply it to the topic of faith, and what do we get? We get the false teaching that there's really no meaningful difference between the various faiths. Yeah, externally there may be different rituals, different customs, holy days, but deep down inside, this false teaching would say, there's really no difference. They're pretty much all the same in that they worship some form of deity and they're all based on self-improvement, as that particular faith defines the self-improvement. The moral relativist might equate faith with ice cream. One guy likes Ben and Jerry's, the next guy likes Haagen-Dazs, the next guy likes Bluebell. I'm a Bluebell man myself. <laughs> Give me a big bowl of southern blackberry cobbler or homemade vanilla and I am enjoying life. Now, never mind the fact that I'm in a sugar coma when I'm done eating that. I'm enjoying life. And the moral relativist would say, Garcia, your decision for Bluebell is just as valid as the next guy's decision for Haagen-Dazs or for Ben and Jerry's. Christianity lovingly says hogwash, hogwash. Christianity boldly answers the question that I asked a few moments ago about why Christianity. And the answer is that tr Christianity has a truth claim that is fundamentally different than all others. This truth claim is eternal, yet received by finite human beings who are in time and space. This truth claim condemns, but it's rich in redemption. This truth claim is exclusivistic. Only some benefit from it, but it's available to all. This truth claim is the ultimate paradox. It seems to contradict itself, but it's true nonetheless. The paradox of Christianity is truly deep, unlike the ways of Satan that Jesus described in Revelation 2.24 as merely so-called deep things. What is this truth claim? Or better said, who is this truth claim? It is the unique, unparalleled God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Sometimes we get used to Jesus. We use his name frequently. And I don't mean as a cuss word. I don't mean as a, as a, in a sinful way. I mean, we use it in conversations with other believers, with, hopefully with unbelievers. Hopefully we talk about Jesus with unbelievers as well. We hear Jesus' name in sermons, on Christian radio, in conversations. And so we get used to it. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should approach Jesus in wonder and awe, yet at the same time have an intimate relationship with him. The Bible strikes that balance. This morning we're going to look at the unique person of Christ as taught in Colossians 1, 25 through 2, 14. But before we look at our passage, let's talk a little bit about the city of Colossae and the overall message of the book of Colossians. The city of Colossae was located in the Roman province of Asia, which is essentially Turkey now. And it was, very, it was once a very prosperous city because of its commerce. But at the time of, writing, of the writing of Paul, Colossae is starting to fade and the surrounding cities are on the rise. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians to Christians in Colossae to address false 
doctrine that was threatening their church, false doctrine that was starting to creep into their church. And the false doctrine at issue was the view that Christ is not the only way to spiritual growth. There were false teachers who were suggesting that philosophical ideas outside of Scripture or religious traditions like circumcision or keeping the Sabbath were also legitimate ways to spiritual growth. And the Apostle Paul says, no, no. There is one person who supersedes everything else in the universe, one person who supersedes everything else for the Christian, and that person is Christ. In other words, Christ, as revealed in Scripture, is perfectly sufficient for the growth and maturation of the believer. He is absolutely preeminent. What is the false doctrine that threatens the church universal today? It's the same one. It's the same one that Paul combated. It's the view that, say, that Christ is not preeminent, that Christ is less than number one. If Satan can deceive us into thinking that Christ is less than who he is, then Satan can diminish our role for God. Satan can diminish our revelation of God's truth to a lost and dying world. God has memorialized his truth in the 66 books of the Bible. It's there. And the burden, the responsibility for the Christian is to rightly divide that word of truth, in other words, to understand the word of truth, and then present it in love to a lost and dying world. God manifests himself through Christ, and the Christian manifests Christ through the Christian's life. Dr. Thomas Constable says this well when, he's, when he describes this as the Christian life is really the life of the indwelling Christ that God manifests through the believer. So we as Christians serve a critical role for God. Now, I don't say that so that we get the big head because God can execute his plan perfectly well without us. But he gives us the opportunity to learn his word and then to present it to a dying world and to present that, that word, that truth, in love. Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1.25. Let's look at our passage. Of this church, Paul means the church universal, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is saying something incredible here. First, he talks about the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations. The Greek word here for mystery is musterion. When we use the word mystery, we think of, I mean, we, we use it differently than the way they used it. Maybe we think of a riddle or a, a mystery crime that we need Detective Columbo to come in and solve for us. It's, it's used differently. Paul used the word, or I should say the culture used the word musterion back then, really in connection with religious cults, where only the members of the cult knew the secret rituals, the musterion, the mystery of that religion. Paul takes that meaning and blows it out of the water. Paul uses the word differently than the pagans used it. Here, when Paul says mystery, he means something that was secret. It was unknown. God had not revealed it. And then once God reveals it, then it's available to anyone if they believe it, if they accept it. This is very similar to the way mystery was used in Daniel chapter 2 in connection with King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The king has this freaky dream, and he is panicked by this dream. So he calls in his wise men, 
And he says, all right, boys, you tell me what my dream was, and then you tell me what it means. Daniel 2 describes the king's dream as a mystery five times there in Daniel 2. And the king's no dummy. He knows if he tells the guys, the wise men, what his dream was, well, these guys might just make up an interpretation. And I, I, there's, no, there's no credibility in that interpretation. I'm not going to believe it. So he says, you tell me what my dream was, and you give me the interpretation, and if you don't, it's your head. I'm going to execute you. Daniel gets lumped in with the group, and it's a mystery. They don't know what the king's dream was, and they certainly don't know what the interpretation was until God comes on the scene. God comes on the scene, reveals the dream, and reveals the interpretation to Daniel, and it's not a mystery anymore because Daniel goes in, tells the king what it is, and the king believes it. So it's available because the king believed it and the king accepted it and the mystery's gone. The mystery's removed. When Paul uses the word mystery here, he means something that was unknown until disclosed by God and it's then available to anyone who accepts it. Paul is saying that since the beginning of human history, the mystery of Christ had not been fully revealed. Sure, God had revealed the fact that he would provide a savior. That revelation was right there in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. But the exact person of the Savior, the nature of the Savior, the work that the Savior would perform for Jews and Gentiles, the riches that the Savior would provide, none of that was known. None of that was known. The Mosaic Law pointed people to the Savior, but no one knew the details of the Savior because God hadn't revealed Christ yet. Then in verse 26, we're told that God's revelation about the mystery of Christ is designed for His saints. Saints means separate means set apart to God, special. Saints are believers, you and me, any believers. They are saints. It's, saints is not a group of people that someone else has designated as saints. Saints is, simply means set apart to God. So believers are, are special to God because we're his children. We're special to God not because we're so cool, not because we're so special, but because he's so special and he's provided us access to him. Verse 27 talks about the Gentiles which is a word for non-Jews. Paul, who is a Jew of Jews, calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles, and he is pumped up. He is jazzed about what he gets to tell the Gentiles. Paul, a former Pharisee, knew the Hebrew Scriptures well. Those Scriptures, like Isaiah 49.6, referred to Yahweh, the, king, the God of the Jews, providing salvation to the Gentiles. But no one knew how God would pull that off. We're the Jews. Yahweh's our God. How's Yahweh also going to provide salvation to the Gentiles and the Jews? That's another part of the mystery of Christ. It was a mystery back then. Paul explains Christ removes this mystery. God, through Christ, does something amazing that no one expected. God says, Gentile, you're on an equal footing with the Jew. Equal opportunity, equal privilege before me. Regardless of race, regardless of culture, I will live in you, God says, if you accept my Christ. You will have my life, my eternal life. You will participate in my glory, my eternal glory. And that is available to Jew and Gentile, Paul says, through Christ. Verse 28. We proclaim him, <clears throat> excuse me, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. In this verse, Paul explains that the other apostles, the teachers, the pastors, proclaim Christ. Now, proclaim is a heavy word. Proclaim is a strong word. Paul doesn't say here, we timidly mention the truth of Christ. 
No. Paul says they declare the truth of Christ. And what is that truth? That Christ is the one and only way to God. That's why Jesus said the way is narrow. The way is narrow to God. Jesus says there's only one door. I'm the door. There are, there's only one legitimate door. There are many doors. Satan has created many counterfeit doors. The world has created many counterfeit doors to God. But they're not really doors to God. There's only one door, and that's why Jesus said, the way is narrow, I am the way. So these teachers, Paul, declare the truth of Christ, that he is the one and only way to God. For those who submit to Christ, Christ makes them complete. The process of completion for believers begins when they're saved from their sins and then continues as the believer matures in Christ by learning God's truth and growing in love. It's always Christ who is the source. I'm going to read 129 and 2.1 together because they fit together. Verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. My face. Paul explains that he labors or works in proclaiming and teaching Christ. But he does so not in his power, but in Christ's power. Paul says in verse 29 that Christ, the Christ's power mightily works within me. Paul recognizes that he doesn't have the ability to go it alone, although Paul is a pretty impressive guy. He's got this amazing intellect. He's got these great writing skills. But Paul is humble enough to recognize it's not enough. It's not enough. I need God's power. I need Christ's power to use my skills not for my glory, but for his glory, to use my skills to execute God's plan for his glory. Now, it's interesting to note here, Paul didn't plant the church at Colossae. And he doesn't know these people. He's never met these people. He's never seen them face to face. Right there in verse 1, it says, who have not personally seen my face. He hasn't met these people, but he loves them. He loves them. He's concerned about them. And this is a love that is motivated. This is a selfless love that's motivated by by Paul's love for God. Back to verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. So here, Paul is saying that the believer needs both love and understanding. In other words, knowledge of God's Word. Love without knowledge, love without God's truth, is used by false teachers to deceive. A prime example of this in our culture today is the debate over whether to legalize gay marriage. Some well-meaning Christians support gay marriage by saying if two people love each other, even if they're of the same gender, then the state should recognize and encourage that love. But the Bible explains that homosexuality is contrary to God's will for humanity and is wrong. It should be obvious that, the, that God has designed the anatomy of the male's body for the anatomy of the female's body and vice versa, but this truth is ignored by the false teaching. Now, I'm not saying that believers should be hateful towards gays. Of course not. A believer should love them. But that love must be anchored in God's truth because the winds of the world will blow us from direction to direction. And if we don't have an anchor, an eternal anchor, in God's truth, we'll be tossed and turned. The believer should say to the gay guy, Hey, man, don't engage in that. God loves you. God's got a plan for your life. That's a, that's a counterfeit system that Satan has designed. God loves you, abandon that lifestyle, and pursue God instead. Pursue God's ways instead. Now, the opposite of having plenty of love but no knowledge is having all kinds of knowledge but no love. 
If that happens, then we're vulnerable to becoming arrogant about what we know of the Bible. Then when we speak of God's word to others, it's just a shrill noise. It's just rah, 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 rah. It's just noise coming out of the mouth. Or in the words of 1 Corinthians 13.1, which Pastor Bruce taught us a few weeks ago, it's a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. It's not a productive communication of God's word. You may or may not have encountered someone like that in your Christian life, but they exist. And the guy or gal says smugly to the new Christian, you obviously don't know much, and then they proceed to show off about how much they know of God, pushing the new person down and propping themselves up. And, and that's not the right approach either. So the knee-jerk reaction by the, by the new Christian is, fast feet don't fail me now. I mean, you know, he, he says, I, 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 I want to go. The Christian life requires both knowledge and love, God's word and love. Back to verse 2. Paul uses the rest of verse 2 and verse 3 to point us to the knowledge that he's been leading up to, the knowledge that he wants us to have. Back to verse 2. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The knowledge that Paul's talking about here is not book knowledge, although that's good to have. And it's not common sense knowledge, although that's also certainly good to have. The knowledge that he's talking about is knowledge of a person. This is a person who is the centerpiece of human history, a person like no other. It is the person of Christ. The false teachers in Colossae apparently were teaching that Christ was one of many sources of divine revelation. Paul says in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some, not a lot, all. Paul is talking to believers here. And these believers want to know, what is God's will for my life? How do I please God? Paul says, look to Scripture. Apart from Christ, God's truth is gibberish to the world. It's a fairy tale. Without Christ, God's truth is hidden or unavailable. The believer, on the other hand, who seeks God's truth through Christ has access to all the treasures of divine wisdom and knowledge. What's the point here? The point is Christ is the one and only source to God and to God's truth. Verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Paul loves these people, and he wants to protect them from false doctrine and from those who would attempt to minimize Christ through persuasive speech. Verse 5, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul is so aligned with Christ, when someone embraces Christ, Paul rejoices. He gets pumped. Verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Paul is saying here that everything for the Christian spiritually should be Christ. Look at all the ways Paul says it. He, he says, walk in Him. You've been firmly rooted in Him. You've been built up in Him. Christ is the rock, the anchor, the standard. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul says, no problem. You get, you get taken captive by Christ, no worries. You get taken captive by the world, you have a problem. Paul is saying, watch out, because the world wants to snatch you. Not physically. They don't want to kidnap you physically. They want your thoughts. They want your thoughts. And that is a real and present danger. 
The world's message is either obviously or subtly opposed to Christ and his kingdom. And that's because the world is aligned with Satan and Satan's counterfeits kingdom. Three examples in our day of empty deception according to the traditions of men uh, following these words here in verse 8 are as follows. Number one, the notion that humanity evolved from animals. It's not true. It's not true. Our great-great-great-great-grandparents to the thousandth power were not orangutans that were throwing nasty stuff at each other. They weren't. We come from God. On the sixth day, the pinnacle of God's creation was creating humanity on the sixth day of creation. Evolution, the notion that we come from animals, is degrading to humanity and insulting to God. Number two, the idea that humanity gets to establish right and wrong. That's not true. We should do right. We should try and identify, this is wrong, this is right, I'm going to do right. Absolutely, we should do that. But we don't get to define it. God defines right and wrong in His Word, in the Scripture. Now, when we try and discern, is this right, is this wrong, what we should be using as our God, as our guide, is God's definition of right and wrong, not our definition, because our definition sometimes is tainted, because we're sinners. We absolutely should try and discern right and wrong and follow right, but we should use God's Word as the guide. Number three, the view that all faiths are equally legitimate. That's not true. That's not true. There is but one way to God, and that is through His Savior that He provided for us, Christ. These three false teachings all make humanity God instead of submitting to the God of the universe, the living God. These false doctrines are fundamental teachings of the unbelieving world. The world is blind to the truth of God because it rejects God's source of truth, who is Christ. It's like Hans Christian Andersen's story about the emperor and his new clothes. Remember that from grade school where the tailors come in and they, they sell the emperor on this new set of clothes. And this new set of clothes is really a non-set of clothes. It doesn't exist. So the emperor parades out in the streets and he's stark naked and everybody's kind of watching him and they're trying not to laugh because they know it's their head if they do. And he doesn't know that he's exposed. The unbelieving world think that they are well clothed, but they are really naked and exposed. A number of years ago, I went to lunch with uh, some friends at the office and we were downtown and we had probably blazers or, or suits on and we walked, I don't know, three or four blocks to a Japanese restaurant. Ate there for about an hour, walked back to the office, and everybody got to the office and they broke up, went their separate ways, and I'm in my office and I'm working away, and then I see my wife in the doorway, and she's got a pair of pants on her arm. Well, sweetie, what are you doing here? Stand up. Turn around. And I had a big old rip in my britches. I mean, <laughs> right down the seam. And these were not like 20-year-old pants or something. These were new pants, new slacks. Someone had been gracious enough who saw me getting on the elevator. Nobody, nobody at lunch mentioned it. Maybe it was because of the jacket or something. But somebody saw me getting on the elevator, and they were gracious enough to call my wife and say, have you seen your husband today? I guess, you know, nobody at the house saw it either. But, uh, you know, she said, your husband's got a problem, and you need to help him. So I put on the new pair of pants and got over my embarrassment and got through the rest of the day. The unbelieving world is like me with my problem. 
And Christ comes along and says, hey, you've got a problem. And, and the believer, or the, the fellow who becomes a believer, believer, looks back and says, I do. And Christ says, here's a pair of britches. Yes, sir, thank you very much. The fellow who says, no, 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 no. I'm good. No, I don't want that. I don't want that, Christ. That's, that's the unbelieving world. Now, no analogy is perfect. I'm not saying that my wife is, is Christ. Um, and, and, and she would agree with that. The point is, Christ has something to offer the world, and the world either accepts it or they reject it. By the way, Paul is not knocking the study of philosophy here in these verses. He's knocking philosophy that leads people away from Christ. In other words, philosophy that is deceptive. Verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Don't read that too fast. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is one of those areas where Christianity hits the light speed button and takes off and leaves all the other face in the dust. Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. This is what theologians call the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Those are fancy words that mean that Jesus is one person who has two natures. He is fully God and fully man in one person forever. He didn't become less God by adding humanity to his nature, and he didn't become something other than human by the fact that he was already God. What's amazing is the infinite nature of God was united with the finite nature of a man. The omniscient nature of God, all-knowing, was united with the limited knowledge of a man. Excuse me. The omnipotent, all-powerful nature of God was united with the limited power of a man. God pulled that off without the attributes of either nature spilling into the other so that we'd have some kind of new form of being. No. Jesus is fully God, is and was fully God, fully man, in one person forever. Frankly, that hurts my brain. That hurts my brain. I don't fully understand how God accomplished that. But God in His sovereignty has not given me a mathematical equation in the Bible to explain it. God has not explained how He did that, how He accomplished that. He just says, He just declares it. He just declares, Jesus is God, Jesus is man. Done! And let me say, that truth is fundamental fundamental to Christianity. Without the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man, Christianity is hollow and meaningless. We might as well just be another cult. Without the truth that Jesus is God and man, it is meaningless. If the non-believer is right, that Jesus was just some dude who was a good teacher, then let's pack it up because we're just wasting our time. Let's live it up and feed our appetites for tomorrow we die. But on the other hand, If, in fact, Jesus is who he said he was, then our jaws should drop and we should approach him in wonder and awe. You see, if the God of the universe humbled himself, and he did, by coming into this world in the form of a man, lower than angels, and took the punishment for us, for our sins, and that punishment was death, if he did that, and he did, then we should approach him in awe. He didn't do that because we deserved it. He did it because we loved it. He loved us, and we were totally helpless. Totally helpless. One of the fundamental principles of Christianity is that God condescends. Now, I don't mean condescension in the way that we normally use the word, where someone acts arrogantly. You know, where the intellectual guy 
might say, I went to a better school than you, and he's looking down at the other guy. Or the really rich guy is looking down at the other guy because he has a big bank, because he has a big bank account and the other guy doesn't. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to a good school. There's nothing wrong with being intellectual or rich or anything like that. What's wrong is when someone uses things to prop themselves up and to push someone else down. That type of condescension is not what we're talking about when we talk about God. When we say that God condescends, it's something good, not bad. It means that God comes down to our level and engages us, engages with us. I don't mean he compromises his standards. He doesn't compromise on the issue of sin, but God comes down and meets us in our need, in our helpless condition. He provides for us. The intellectual guy, the rich guy I just described a moment ago, he may think he's superior to the other guy, but he's not. And that's why we say, dude, you're just being arrogant. God, on the other hand, is infinitely superior to all of humanity. But although he's infinitely greater, he humbled himself. God humbled himself for me and for you. He served me and you. God doesn't distance himself. He, God would be justified in saying, forget humanity. They're a bunch of rebels. They're a bu they revolted against me. But he doesn't do that. He says, I love them, and I'm going to provide for them. God didn't create us and then say, you guys figure it out. I'm, I'm gone. I'm out of here. Instead, he steps down from his perfect throne room in, in heaven, quadrillions of light years away, and engages with us and provides for us. He condescends for us and to us. How do we know this? Genesis 1 and 2, the mere act of creation where God created the world and all that's in it and us. He didn't have to do that. That's an act of condes condescension. Then at the first sign of trouble, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, what did he do? He didn't say, I'm gone. Forget it. You guys are on your own. No. He engages with them. He provides salvation in seed form. He clothes them properly. Genesis 4, where Cain is letting anger consume him, God engages with Cain. He counsels him. He advises him. Don't let anger eat you up. Don't let sin master you. Although Cain rejected that advice, that counsel from God. With Noah, God engaged Noah to save him and his family from the flood through the, through the building of the ark. God enabled little David to beat the giant Goliath. He saved Daniel from the lion's den. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And then, in that perfect moment in time, God's moment, he engaged in the ultimate act of condescension. He humbled himself and left the perfection and prosperity of heaven to dwell among us as a man. Satan, since the early days of Christianity, has had a campaign to deceive humanity about the true nature of Christ by spreading the lie that Christ is either not fully God or not fully man. Satan's current focus is the false teaching that Christ is not fully God. You see, Satan does not want people to know how God condescends to us and for us. He doesn't want, to know, want people to know how God humbled himself for us. The lie that Satan peddles is that God is arrogant and cruel. Satan says, God doesn't love you. God wants to deprive you of what you want, of what you desire. And God wants you to worship him because he is an egomaniac. God confidently replies, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in my Savior, what my Savior did for humanity, what I did for humanity, in condescending, in serving humanity, that's the proof that I love them. So back to our passage in verse 10. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. 
Verse 10 tells us that Christ is the absolute, complete authority. He is the King of kings. Most people don't recognize his authority, but that doesn't make it any less true. At Christ's return, his authority will be undeniable. Until Christ's return, he pours out his patience on humanity. He just opens up that spigot of patience, and patience just flows on humanity. At his return, he'll turn that spigot off, and he'll turn on that terrifying, horrible spigot of wrath. And wrath will flow out on humanity. And then his authority will be undeniable, undeniable. The other thing that verse 10 tells us is that we are made complete in Christ. That doesn't mean believers are perfect or sinless because we're not. We are sinners. It means that Christ is our source of life, maturity, and happiness. He completes us. The apostle continues his theme of in him, in him, in him, in Christ. Verse 9 tells us that in him is deity. And verse 10 tells us that we are in him. So we have our eternal relationship with God through Christ, not by any other means. Verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In verse 13, Paul describes us as being dead in our transgressions. In other words, dead in our sins. Humanity has a sin problem that is the big elephant in the room. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to talk about it. And I understand that. I mean, it's not very flattering to say, hey, you're a wrongdoer. I'm a wrongdoer. We're all wrongdoers. But sin is a huge issue. It's a huge issue because it separates us from God. And that separation brings servitude. Humanity has two options. Submit to sin, and sin is our master. Or submit to God, and God is our master. And let me say, God is a loving and gracious master. Sin, on the other hand, is a cruel and selfish master. For those who are in him, in other words, in Christ, God gives them a way out of the slavery of sin. In closing, there are four things that I want to highlight from verses 11 through 14. First, Christ performs a spiritual circumcision on each one of us when we come to him. He cuts away the power that sin has over us. We as believers still have a sin nature, but what distinguishes from the believer from the unbeliever is that the believer doesn't have to be a slave to that sin nature anymore. Christ gives us a way out, an alternative to a life in perpetual sin, in the cycle of perpetual sin. When the believer sins, the believer can confess his sins, under 1 John 1, 9, and reestablish that intimate relationship with God. The believer can daily abandon sin by submitting his life to the righteousness that God has designed for the believer every day. The unbeliever, on the other hand, has no way out of the slave market of sin, no way out other than Christ. When the unbeliever sins, what does he do to deal with it? Does he know or even care? Christ is the only way to truly deal with sin, and Christ is available to all black, white, brown, rich, poor, tall, short, everybody. Second, we are identified with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We are now victorious with him. We don't always feel victorious, but we are because we've been baptized in him. In other words, we're identified with him 
and specifically we're identified with his victory. What is his victory? He is the conqueror of death, the conqueror of sin. So when we get identified with him, we're identified with the conqueror, the conqueror of two of our mortal enemies, death and sin. Third, by addressing the sin problem, Christ gives new life to all those who come to him. We are a new creation by God because we are in union with Christ, who is the conqueror of death. This new life that the believer receives at salvation is a life of freedom. And that's why Jesus said in John 8.32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus was talking about spiritual freedom, spiritual liberation. He liberates us from the power of that cruel master sin. The fourth thing that I want to mention from these verses is the manner in which Christ conquered sin. How did he do it? The answer is the proof that our master is gracious and loving. The way Christ conquered sin is that he paid the penalty for it. He was our substitute in receiving the wrath of God. He said, Garcia, step aside. Let me take that wrath in your spot. All of humanity, step aside, because that wrath of God is terrifying. And you cannot take that. You, cannot, you can't bear it. I will bear it from, for you. Even though there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that prayer, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me but not my will, but thy will be done. He didn't want to have to do it. But he said, I, Father, I will submit to you. So that wrath he took as our substitute. That's the proof that our master is gracious and loving. And that's why Paul said here in verse 14, that's why he uses the phrase, phrase certificate of debt. We owed God a debt because of our sin that we were unable to pay. We didn't have the cash to pay for it. We didn't have the capital to pay for it. We didn't have anything. Our lives, we didn't have anything to pay for it. A debt because of our sin that we were totally helpless to pay. So Christ came in. Not that you can pay for any, not that you can pay for, use cash to pay, pay God. You can't. So Christ came to pay for us because he loved us. To pay the debt that we couldn't pay. But he did more than just pay the debt. Verse 14 says that he removed the decrees against us. That's the indictment. That's that legal document that, that is the indictment against us. And we are guilty as charged. All of humanity is indicted because of our sin, and we are guilty. But Christ willingly took our place and accepted the horrible, terrifying wrath of God as our substitute. And as a result, anybody who accepts Christ's work, the indictment is void. The indictment is not read against them. It's removed. It's permanently removed. On the cross, Christ took the punishment for our sins. And so through the cross, the indictment is removed. Or in the words of this metaphor in verse 14, Christ took the indictment and boom, 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 nailed it to the cross. Nailed it to the cross and it stays there. It remains there for anyone who says, Christ, yes, I'll take that new pair of britches. Yes, sir. I'm exposed and I will take that new pair of britches. I accept your work on the cross. This is the Christ that we worship. This is the Christ that we should approach in wonder and awe. This is our Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. This is the answer to the question of why Christianity.